0: recording. So thanks Richard for that long reading. If you've got access to a Bible that would be handy to have in front of you. Um, so this time last year, I mean this is luxury because this time last year, I don't know if you remember, we were in the swing of church online. <coughs> yeah, there's not any nostalgic cheers for that is there? A, for um, months we could, thanks, we could only meet um, uh, Virtually, like we streamed a pre-recorded service and that was followed by morning tea over Zoom. Now, there's every chance we could get locked down again and I'll be telling you how marvellous Zoom is at that point and how you should all join in. But, uh, you know, it has its downside, Zoom, doesn't it? Thank you, Robin. Um, But I reckon Zoom's got built into it an algorithm that if it's going to glitch, you've probably come across this, if it's going to glitch and freeze frame your face, it quickly searches every frame and displays the one where you look your very worst. All right. So sorry, I had these on the projector, but let me see if we can show you. So this is what I think I look like on Zoom. You know, Jason Statham. But then it glitches and then it get, you get something like this. Oh yeah, 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 That sort of, or, yeah, never a good one. It never catches you at your best. I reckon it's even got an AI that recreates a face you've not pulled and just like shows a horrible one. But when you say the words Sodom and Gomorrah, even in today's biblically illiterate society, I reckon most people on the street would have some idea of what you mean. And probably the idea they've got when you say Sodom and Gomorrah is they're kind of like the worst expression of God, catching God's face, you know, in a bad expression with wide-sweeping, indiscriminate judgment, fire, real fire and brimstone stuff. And so uh, the, I think the, the this kind of zoom, glitch, freeze frame people have in their mind is what we just heard from chapter 19, um, 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. I reckon that's what people have in mind when we say Sodom and Gomorrah. It's true, God does finally destroy Sodom and Gomorrah on purpose, premeditatedly. And what's more, as we'll see, the rest of the Bible doesn't say that this is a one-off, God just in a bad mood that day. It says this judgment of a particular place is a warning of God's future final judgment to come. And I reckon this average person on the street again uh, thinks that if there is a God, if he is this fire and brimstone judgy God, they don't want to know him. And they don't want to know Christians if that's what we're like as well. Because the question Sodom and Gomorrah raises for us, the question that's on Abram's mind as if God can bring about this kind of destruction, is God good? Is God good? But As we look at not just the zoom freeze frame of God carrying out this judgment, but also we'll look at the before and the after and the during to get a fully rounded picture from this episode in Abram and Lot's life. We'll see that God is good, that God is right. And he's just and fair and that he's merciful and kind and full of grace. So just to get you up to speed where we're up to with Abram, God's made a covenant contract with him, promising him offspring, that nations and kings will come from him and the land of Canaan is his own possession. And Abram's side of the bargain is to take God at his word and trust him. So uh, in Genesis 17, uh, God said to Abram, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And so far, since then, Abram's been putting that into practice. Uh, Abram has had himself and all the males in his household circumcised as God commanded, uh, as a physical sign that they were in on this contract entrusted to them with God's promise. And then Abram's shown faithfulness again as as God in the form of three men came to visit, laying on the best hospitality he possibly could for them. So that's where he's up to. So far, as we catch Abram now, he's doing really well. So our outline, I'll keep repeating this as we go because it's not on the screen for you. Is God fair? Fair assessment, fair chance, remembering the righteous. Is God fair? Fair assessment. Fair chance, remembering the righteous. I'll say them again as we go. So first then, the question on Abram's mind is, is God fair? So Abram's seeing off the two blokes that he's been entertaining. Two of them head off to Sodom and we're later told that they are angels and one remains. And however this works, however God works this, uh, this is God himself hanging back for a chat with Abram. Um, because God uh, has been reasoning with himself. We get an insight into what God's saying to himself. So from 18, verse 17. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? Abram will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abram what He has promised him. So God's saying, Abram's my man in the world, and his offspring will be my nation." Uh, so they need to know from the get-go that there is right and wrong, there's good and bad, there's things that are right and just. He needs to know that my way is right and just, so their ways should be right and just. So this incident is all about what God being good, being right and just looks like in practice when confronted with things like the horror show of Sodom. And it's this incident is all about what Abram being righteous looks like when confronted with the horror show of Sodom. So the question in the area is will God be good? Will Abram be good? So God decides to go and check out for himself if it's his, if Sodom and Gomorrah are as bad as he's heard they are via the two angels. But Abram's got questions for God. He approaches God. That's a, a sign that he's enjoying this good covenant relationship with him. Uh, verse 23, then Abram approached him, God, and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What, what if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? I mean, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So what Abram's really asking, isn't it, is, are you going to be fair? It doesn't seem to be me, right to me, that you're going to sweep away a whole place without taking into account that there are people there who are faithful to you. And Abram is certain that God is fair. Far be it from you, he says. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, of course he will. But how? How is God going to make this situation fair? I don't know if you're any good at haggling in shops for things, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible, I, I feel bad for putting the shop assistant out of the, the, the trouble of serving me. Um, my dad used to, used to do it every time we were shopping, you know, he's always like, oh, isn't there a, a deal you could do, Because you know, I'm buying so much, you know, it's like two pairs of socks or something, <laughs> I used to hide in the corner. Is this what Abram's doing? Is he haggling here with his 50, his 45, his 30, his 20, his 10? Surely testing God's patience. Well, no, Abram knows his place. He says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. He, what Abram's doing here is asking God what he's like. He's not telling God how he should be. So remember that, that That God loves us to ask questions to find out what he's like. Doubts and questions from a position of knowing that you are but just an ashes. That's a good thing to do, to ask God. But Abram starts out genuinely trying to work out the complicated problem of how God carries out his judgment fairly. But then if we look closely at verse 28, having worked out that God is not just fair and just but also willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous. Abram finds himself, so Abram's the righteous man in God's eyes at this point by faith. Abram finds himself pleading for the whole city, not just for his own family. So verse 28, he says, What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? God says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. So Abram's got an inkling that being right with God outweighs, has got more sway, is worth more than wickedness. And he establishes that that is indeed the case with, let's face it, a really awkwardly protracted series of questions going through those numbers. And what we learn is this. That God will hear the pleading of the righteous to save the unrighteous. God will hear the pleading of the righteous to save the unrighteous. See, God's response to those rejecting Him is not a knee jerk condemnation, His reaction is to consider how they might be saved. And because Abram is a righteous man walking before God, that's Abram's consideration too, how the unrighteous might be saved. And our reaction to the world rejecting God is not to throw up our hands and just condemn them and leave them to it, but to ask God to save them. Remembering, as we saw last week, that our being saved is only because we ourselves are miracle children. And a really cool outcome of all this conversation that Abram's having is that Abram is being a blessing to the nations. That's one of the, remember, that's one of the things God promised him he would be, he and his offspring would be, blessing the nations by seeking to rescue them from judgment. Moving on to chapter 19 then. follow the two angels and see if Sodom being condemned to destruction is a fair assessment. This is our next heading, heading two of four, fair assessment. Let's see if Sodom being condemned is a fair assessment. Well, the angels are greeted by Abram's nephew, Lot. So we might remember Lot from chapter 13, Abram's nephew, when Abram offered him the pick of the land Instead of doing the wise thing and choosing somewhere in the land of promise, Lot chose the shiny, instant gratification of the plain of Sodom. Um, so he chose to go there, and then we hear later his camp was near Sodom. By the time these angels get there, Lot is in the gateway to the city, meaning that he's a big cheese in this town. He's one of the elders like on the town council an integral part of Sodom. So Lot welcomes the angels, not quite the great feast that Abram laid on, but faithfully trying to show them hospitality and trying to protect them. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in this square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him. And entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So there's an insistence and a hastiness, bread without yeast, that sounds an ominous note. So you know, if you've got guests coming around at short notice for dinner or something, and you don't so much tidy up as shove everything in one room, <laughs> and that room, you, know, you, you can't go in there because then you realize how disorganized and untidy, We really are. Well, it feels a bit like that with the town square. Uh, No, 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 no. You can't. You don't want to go in the town square at night. Verse four. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. And Lot, whilst trying to protect his guests, doesn't exactly clothe himself in glory, does he? Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, I don't know if you're expecting me to come up with some complicated biblical reason why what Lot suggests here is really okay. There isn't. It's as awful as it sounds, it's not Lot's not just calling their bluff. I mean, we, we do have to weigh that against two Peter two in the New Testament does say this about Lot. It says Lot a righteous man, really? Lot a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day by day after day was tormented in his righteous soul. By the lawless deed, he saw and heard. So we have to take it that at a fundamental level, Lot knows the right thing is to protect God's messengers. Somewhere in his heart, he knows Sodom is a terrible place to be. And in the end, he does trust in God. None of that is to excuse his behaviours up to this point. Okay? Please don't hear me defending what he's done. You see, Lot's been marinated in the twisted morality of Sodom for so long that he's been blinded blinded to thinking that offering his daughters like this is an okay thing to do. I mean, I'm sure he never set out to be the kind of man that would offer his daughters up for gang rape. But a thousand small choices... A blind eye here, a keeping stum hit there, not speaking out because they didn't want to look all judgmental. They've all taken their toll until he's barely distinguishable from your average sodomite. So we mustn't be naive. We mustn't think that we're bulletproof. The people we hang out with, the culture we're marinating in, will, under the radar, subtly chip away on seeing things God's right and just way. Um, Verse 9, the men of Sodom reject any moral censure. Verse 14, they laugh at the idea of God carrying out his judgment on them. And that's the world we live in, isn't it? So that's why we must make sure we need to keep marinating ourselves in God's word and we need to keep regularly, purposefully, as our top priority, being amongst God's people to support one another. You, you just can't be a Christian on your own. The, the men of Sodom laugh at the idea of judgment as a joke. And many people today, our average person on the street again, would say that the idea of God's judging people, sending people to hell, well, they'd think that that was a sick joke, wouldn't they? I reckon your average person on the street would probably say they don't want a judgmental God. But think about it, what should God do with a town where the norm is to greet visitors with gang rape? Not just a few rotten apples, all the men of all ages. Why can we feel nauseating repulsion at Lot offering his daughters, but he can't see that? What what should God do with a town like that, where that's become the norm? Do we really think they should get away with it? What if they had taken Lot's daughters? If you were one of Lot's daughters, what would you think should happen to those men? What would you think should happen to your father who gave you up for the sake of some strangers? How much more is God who knows perfect, who's perfectly right and just and knows every hair on our heads? How much more does he feel the outrage that we feel? You see, God's judgment, God being judgmental is a good thing. Remember why he singled out Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place? Because of the outcry against them. We see that in verse 18 and 1820 and 1930. It's because of the outcry. And in the Bible, that kind of outcry always means the crying out of the downtrodden and the oppressed, the powerless, the victims against their oppressors. It's the kind of cry that God warns throughout the Bible that he is especially attentive to. So we mustn't pit God's kindness against his judgment, because God's judgment is his kindness. We're told not to take revenge. Uh, so somewhere like Romans twelve nineteen, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord, So we're told not to take revenge, not because there is no vengeance, but because God who judges everything perfectly with all the information, no bias, it's up to him to take the vengeance. So there is vengeance, it's just not ours to take. so the truth is we do want God to judge. God's judgment is good. We instinctively know that evil deserves punishment and that good deserves reward. It's just that we all know that we've done evil ourselves. We've all gone against God. We've all hurt others. And we're not keen on God's judgment because at heart, we know we deserve it. Okay, so we're seeing the verdict that Sodom should be destroyed is a fair assessment. And yet when it comes to escaping this judgment, God gives a fair chance. A fair chance, our next heading. So God shows that he's willing to rescue any who turn to him to be saved. That God is slow to judge, giving every possible out that he can. In the end, it's the angels that protect Lot rather than him protecting them. And they give him a plain warning and a chance to include his extended family in the rescue. Verse 11. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they couldn't find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. Uh, Lot's sons-in-law laugh off the threat of judgment. The angels speak with more urgency, warning after warning, whilst Lot kind of dithers, procrastinates. In the end, the angels drag them out. Verse 16, when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere on the plain, flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away. So let's just sum up Lot's efforts here. He's uh, jeopardised his daughters, he's enraged the townsfolk, and uh, left them. he's left himself needing rescue by those he sought to protect. He's not doing great. And he's still, like, wheedling for concessions, <coughs> He still wants to go to a town, not up into the hills, maybe his own little Sodom that he wants. Bad case of I'm a city person. Yeah. But not only do they, the angels rescue him, despite his best efforts to burn to a crisp, they entertain his request. So looking at this run-up to their destruction, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't simply a story of God snapping his fingers in angry destruction. It's a story of God extending chance after chance, grace after grace, intervening directly to offer rescue for the unrighteous from what they deserve. So if you're not a Christian here today, if your friends and family are not Christian, that unrighteous category, that's you. Not because you're worse than me or anyone else here. You could well have lived a much more moral life than I have. But because the only way to be righteous, the only way to be right with God, is to accept the rescue offered by Jesus. So in Sodom, the offer was the angel's hands to drag them out, their backs turned on Sodom. But it was a rescue they needed to opt into a rescue that involved turning their backs on their old ways and their old self-reliance. For us, the offer is to put our trust in Jesus, to give our lives over to him as our saviour and our Lord. And some people say, oh, like, God's nice in the New Testament, he's all grace and mercy, in the Old Testament he's all fire and brimstone. Well, we can't say that because Jesus himself applies the case of Sodom and Gomorrah to his own return. So in Luke 17, Jesus says, it was the same in in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. That's on the day that Jesus returns. See, Jesus came first time around to save, but when when he returns, it will be to judge, to deal with evil once and for all, to give it its just deserts. So far from being a one-off, Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of a microcosm, a prototype of what God will do for all people everywhere. Give us every opportunity to escape judgment by turning from evil and grabbing hold of Jesus' hands. But in the end, bringing a final, total judgment. Lot's wife couldn't quite let go. Maybe it was the cushy life of being an important man's wife, the freedom of a liberal society to do what you want to do, be who you want to be. For whatever reason, she couldn't let it go. She turned back to Sodom and got caught up in the judgment. So learn from her. Don't be nostalgic for sin. Don't look at the short-term pleasures that it offers with envy. Remember instead the destruction that sin brings and the joy of being rescued forever into right relationship with God. Now, I don't reckon any of us would be too heartbroken if Lot had bitten the dust with the rest of his precious Sodom, would we? But in the end, he is rescued by grace, undeservedly, because God was remembering the righteous. This is our last heading, remembering the righteous. As Abram looks down, on the smouldering plain. Verse 29 of chapter 19 sums up for us what's just happened. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered, who does he remember? might expect Lot in there, but no. When God destroyed the city of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. In other words, the real reason Lot is rescued is because God asked him to, uh, Abram asked him to. And God's remembered Abraham. God's answered Abram's prayer by rescuing Lot. And ultimately, the reason we are rescued from the judgment we deserve is because we have a righteous man praying for us. 1 John 2, verse 1. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you may, will not sin. But if anyone does sin, and that's all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus goes into bat for us with the Father, he speaks to God for us. I mean, I wonder what he says already pray what jesus prays to god the father about me that colin taylor 48 years old today you know good job with uh, losing all his hair that certainly helped him with his vanity problem and uh, less hairs to count i guess yeah but father i know he should know better by now i know that some of his hours some of his days some of his years that they've been in rebellion against us. I know sometimes he's refused our loving rule. I know what he really deserves is our wrath. What he really deserves is to go to hell. But he's one of mine. He's with me. I took his sin on me. Uh, We both know how painful that was for both of us. But It worked, he's hidden in me, so forgive him. Don't send him away from us to hell, let's adopt him instead. God hears that prayer and answers. God's justice is coming to deal with sin once and for all. But that Zoom freeze frame of judgment isn't the whole story. Isn't the whole story. Ahead of judgment, God has sent his righteous one to rescue us. So we must warn those who live as we once did. We must let them know the good news of rescue. Even if we think they'll laugh it off or cling to life, live their own way. We've got to try, haven't we? And we must intercede for them, pray for them, for us, the righteous in Christ, to pray for the unrighteous. Because it's the kind of prayer that God longs to hear from us and the kind of prayer He loves to answer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you don't just give us what we deserve straight off the bat in anger, but you've sent Jesus to give us every opportunity to escape the judgment we deserve. Thank you that you are a good and fair, impartial judge. That you'll never get any judgment wrong. And that by your grace... You've saved us from the judgment we deserve. Please help us to have your heart for the unrighteous, to keep pleading with you for the unrighteous. And we just take a moment now to bring before you three names of people we know who aren't trusting in Jesus, who we would love to. Lord, please have mercy on these people. Please grab them by the hands and drag them into faith with Jesus. Amen.